For the first time in our podcast series, we take you to a live recording of the launch of Structurally Unsound, a new major report examining structural inequalities in the UK. The report is a collaboration between UCL's Grand Challenge of Justice and Equality, UCL Public Policy, and the Resolution Foundation. It outlines five cross-cutting themes and approaches when thinking about how to better approach the study and treatment of structural inequalities in the UK. This episode kicks off with project co-chair Matthew Whittaker, Deputy Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, providing background to discussion. Then project lead Siobhan Morris from UCL Grand Challenges presents the project's key findings and outlines the report's five cross-cutting themes and corresponding approaches for equity to be considered and utilised by researchers, advocates and policymakers working to address structural inequalities. Finally, Dr Olivia Stevenson, Head of Public Policy at UCL, concludes by explaining how these five approaches are all interrelated and cannot be considered in isolation nor as a hierarchy. Tackling embedded structural inequalities requires active change and responsibility for driving change lies with all of us. My name is Matt Whisker, I'm Deputy Chief Executive here at the Resolution Foundation. You're all very welcome to this morning's event on tackling structural inequality in the UK. It's fair to say you are the lucky ones. This, as far as I know, is the first ever Resolution Foundation event where we have sold out before we've even advertised. So you've all done very well to get your place today. In fact, the crowds have been so big that it's brought the whole of Westminster to standstill. <laughs> I've even spotted a couple of people putting up tents in the, uh, in the park last night just so they can get their place on the front row. So well done to you. But I think actually a lot of people have really earned their place in the crowd today because there's lots of familiar faces, people who have been with us on this nine-month journey on this joint project with UCL, coming on to all the roundtables, engaging in the process. So thanks again to all of you who've been involved in all of that. And good as well to see lots of unfamiliar faces. I think new not just to this particular project, but new possibly even to Resolution Foundation and to, and to this building. And in many ways, that goes to the heart of what this project's been about. It's, it's really been about trying to bring together people who are already experts in their own field uh, and doing great things, but hoping to bring people together and get that sort of synthesis and helping people to, to learn what other people are doing and, and see where some of the barriers still are. And for those of you particularly who are, bit, who are new to this project, it's worth saying that what this project is and what it isn't. So what it isn't is something where we've done lots of uh, new analysis and worked on specific policies that are designed to try and fix inequality or solve inequality in any way. The, the subheading of the project is about uh, igniting research and to torture that particular metaphor. That is what we've tried to do. So over the nine months, we've provided the spark, if you like, the, the conversations we've had, the discourse, the debates, the spark, and then it's up to you and to others not in this room to sort of make those flames burn brightly over the coming months and years. So this has been a joint project, Resolution Foundation, along with colleagues at UCL. So I owe lots of thanks to lots of people within RF who've done uh, lots more heavy lifting than I have. But also huge thanks, of course, to the team at UCL who have done the heaviest of lifting of all, not least in terms of putting together the final report. So those of you who have been at the roundtables can attest to the fact that we covered a lot of ground over the course of the nine months, and I was not looking forward to having to put together a final report, and luckily I didn't have to, because UCL took on that responsibility. And for those of you, as and when you get a chance to see it, you will find that it is excellent. 
It is both comprehensive but readable. Uh, I think it's it's got a dose of depression in it, but it's got hope as well. And it very much is in the in the sort of spirit of the project, looking forward and trying to get at where we go from here, rather than just waving the flag and saying, "Isn't everything awful?" And I think we've tried to do three things over the course of the project. Really, one is, as I've already mentioned, build those connections is to bring people together deepen understanding and deepen networks. It is secondly to spread best practice. So where we see research that is great or the connection of research to policy, which is making a difference, trying to spread that into other fields. And then the third is around those evidence gaps which still exist and thinking collectively, how can we do something to try and plug those gaps? So the way we're going to run today is uh, Jamal Morris and Olivia Stevenson are going to kick off from UCL and they're going to run us through the main findings from the report to really set the context for the debate that follows. And then we have Sam Smethers, Chief Executive of the Fawcett Society, who has worked across a whole range of different organisations over the years on issues around social inequality and probably owns the record for coming to most roundtables over the course of this project. So we owe Sam more than one. And then Sir Simon Woolley, who is the founding director of Operation Black Vote, the uh, advisory chair of the Race Disparity Unit, which is very much his brainchild, and many other great things as well. Uh, more than 25 years tackling social inequality and racial inequality. And the only surprise when he appeared on the Queen's Birthday Honours list earlier this year was that it had taken so long. So a great panel, and I should say as well, uh, when you do read the report, if you, if you read nothing else, make sure you read the foreword from Charlene White, the ITN newsreader, who we had hoped would be with us today here as well, but is apparently having a baby. Uh, and, so, and so can't make it, but I'm sure she's at home with a cup of tea, feet up, watching this on the live stream. So uh, you're very welcome as well, Charlene, wherever you are. But with no further ado, over to you. Okay, thanks, Matt. So hello, welcome, everyone. I've got the easy job today. Well, along with Matt as chair. Uh, I'm just presenting some of the headlines, some key stats, and the themes of our reports before we delve into much greater detail and get into discussions with Sam and Simon. Much has changed over the last decade in the UK. The combination of an unprecedented squeeze on wages, sustained austerity for public services and a shrinking social security net has resulted in the year-on-year progress in household living standards that was enjoyed throughout much of the prior 50 years grinding to a halt. The economic disillusionment and rise of in-work poverty this has created has contributed to the sense of division that has accompanied much of the debate around the UK's exit from the EU with individuals appearing to increasingly adopt a them-and-us view of society. Inequality, then, has risen rapidly up the agenda. But the experience of structural disadvantage and just what is meant by inequality can vary considerably from person to person. And much good work has already been done in this vein, and, as Matt said, a multitude of organisations and people, many of who are here today, have really taken this forward, and there's much to show for this effort. Taking employment as an example, the gender pay gap for full-time employees has fallen from over 17% in the late 1990s to 8.6% today. And the introduction of mandatory gender pay gap reporting will hopefully drive yet further improvements. Employment rates also indicate progress and seem to show that things appear to be getting better. The UK's employment rate has grown significantly over recent years and in the most recent data it sat at a joint record high of 71.6%. Examining employment rates by social characteristic in 2008 and 10 years later in 2018, 
uh, we can see that this growth has in most part overwhelmingly benefited members of historically disadvantaged groups. For example, faster employment growth for women relative to men means that the employment gap between the sexes fell by 24% over the period to 9 percentage points in 2018. However, delving beyond the headlines presents a much more mixed picture. At 67.6%, the proportion of BAME adults in work has increased significantly from the rate of 61% recorded just a decade ago. The proportion, however, of BAME adults in work still lags behind the rate recorded by the white population by 10 percentage points. So there's been an improvement, but to a degree. Similarly, the proportion of disabled people in work has risen over the decade. Again, good news. Again, to an extent. The narrowing of the employment gap recorded by disabled people is much smaller, fell by just 9% and remained at an exceptionally high 31% in 2018. As a result, disabled job seekers are still applying for 60% more jobs than non-disabled. The more detailed breakdowns in the chart highlight the extent to which those groups facing multiple disadvantage also continue to be subject to much lower than average employment rates. Analyzing the data from an intersectional perspective shows that the employment rate for non-disabled BAME women remains around 18 percentage points lower than the rate for non-disabled white women. And for disabled BAME women, the rate remains exceptionally low at 40%. So it's important to note that these figures present broad overviews of employment rates for these groups presented. However, in reality, the nuances of experience among these groups vary greatly. For instance, in the period from 2016 to 18, the employment rate for disabled Bangladeshi and Pakistani women was just 21%. That's compared to a rate of 51% for disabled Indian women and 44% for disabled black women. And it's a similar picture of inequity on pay, as you might imagine. Bain groups, women and disabled all face pay penalties relative to white men, with BAM disabled women again experiencing the greatest disadvantage. If we delve into specifics, then in raw terms, the average hourly pay of black male graduates is 24% lower than that recorded among their white counterparts. While raw pay gaps often reflect differences in the types of jobs or level of seniority held by certain groups, the existence of adjusted pay gaps are harder to explain. And even when we control for the characteristics of the two populations and the jobs they do, the gap remains in place. That is, where we compare workers and jobs that differ only in terms of the colour of their skin, a pay gap of 17% is still recorded. So, of course, this doesn't just affect employment. It has knock-on effects. Homeownership rates are much lower than the UK average for all ethnic minority groups. In particular, black families are less than half as likely as white families to be homeowners. They're also particularly low for the Bangladeshi and Pakistani groups at 34%, respectively. And again, this in turn obviously has a knock-on effect in terms of impacts on health, etc. So whilst there are a lot more to structural inequality than gender, ethnicity and disability, the examples set out here serve to illustrate the centrality of these issues to broader debates and policy areas. Inequalities cannot be fixed by a single focus initiative or one measure alone. People's lives are much more complex than this. But by their very nature, structural inequalities can take a long time to dismantle. And doing so requires active change. It's not enough to assume that things will simply just get better over time. It's therefore imperative that we continue to seek out and meet head-on the challenges at hand. And so over the course of the project we have identified five what we are calling approaches for equity. Language, opportunity, understanding evidence, voice and place. 
to very briefly go through these in order. Language, recognizing that language matters. The report advocates for the need to develop a consistent approach to defining terms and a greater shared understanding of how language is used across disciplines and sectors. Recognizing that the terms used to evidence inequalities hold significance for what is captured and measured. For example, the multiple terms used in central UK government for social mobility, for example, equality, injustice, makes it problematic to share data sets, conduct cross-cutting analysis and evaluate policies. There's a need to better understand the different outcomes that are meant by using these different terms. Secondly, opportunity. Shift the focus onto equity. Disadvantages and social structures result in inequalities that emerge before birth, accumulate and compound throughout an individual's life. And therefore, they cannot be alleviated through individual choice or access to opportunity alone. Discrimination works directly against individual choice in this way. Thirdly, ensuring diversity of evidence in decision-making. Adopting an intersectional perspective to identify and plug gaps in understanding and elevate the status of qualitative research. Recognising there is also an urgent need for analysts and researchers to consider how best to future-proof data collection to allow access to continuous comparable data. Changing the structure of society by changing who designs it. Raising the voices and representation of disadvantaged groups, both in research agendas and policy spheres. Ensuring measures to address social inequalities are implemented in conjunction with, and very much not on, individuals experiencing disadvantage. And finally, the importance of adopting a place-based approach. Recognising that the experience of inequalities is heavily intertwined with place, and so tackling issues at the right level is paramount. Now, Olivia is going to delve into a little bit more about how these approaches can be used. So the five approaches advocated for in our report, and which Siobhan has just sketched out to you, are all interrelated, cannot be examined in isolation, but should not be viewed as a hierarchy. If we pick just one example to demonstrate why in our report we've come to these conclusions through our many discussions over the last nine months, let's say take, for example, the localisation agenda and spend a few minutes just focusing on this and working it through. Comparing the performance of 11-year-olds born in 2000 with those born in 1970s, data reveals that the area where a child comes from is a more powerful predictive factor of educational attainment for those born in 2000. As such, nearly half of people, that's 46%, say that where you end up in UK society today is largely determined by who your parents are. And it's easy to see why such views hold when statistics show the extent of place-based inequalities across the UK today. 48% of BAME groups in Northern Ireland are employed, whereas over 76% are employed in the southeast of England. Furthermore, the gaps in healthy life expectancy between the most and least deprived areas of England is around 19 years for both men and women. In Scotland, the gap rises to 23.8 years for men and 22.6 years for women. Place clearly matters then. And so tackling issues at the right level is paramount through ensuring true representation of experience. Because at the moment, those that make policy and deliver services are not representative of those they affect. There's a pressing need to ensure true representation and diversity of voice 
in societal institutions and organisations. Indeed, all six Metro mayors elected in England in 2017 were white men, and women held just 6% of seats in their cabinets in 2018. In Scotland, of the 36 council leaders elected in 2017, only eight were women and none were BAME. The profile of local councillors in England is also far from diverse. Earlier this year, analysis showed that 40 local authorities with BAME populations between 6% and 12% have either zero BAME representation or one BAME councillor. Women from BAME backgrounds are underrepresented with only 38.4% of the identified BAME councillors as female. Localisation agendas must then be careful not to leave anyone behind. The availability of good evidence and a strong policy response is intrinsically linked with adequate voice and representation. Change in society can only be achieved by changing who designs it. And of course, the quality and breadth of available evidence, therefore, was a running theme throughout our project discussions. Much evidence already exists, and you've seen a lot of it presented this morning, and there's more in our report. And a lot of good research has been done, and by many of you in this room. But significant evidence gaps remain. For example, local authorities and the Office for National Statistics do not routinely nor systematically collect data on sexual orientation or gender identity. As a consequence, understandings of inequality and equity based on sexual orientation is often incomplete, with these evidence gaps present at every stage of the life course. There also remains a chronic lack of data on LGBT individuals and consequently the structural disadvantages they face. Our report therefore sets out key ways to plug evidence gaps using data, descriptions and bringing in diversity. As we've noted with regards to voice, representation of those experiencing structural inequalities must be central in localisation agendas. A key part of this is not just raising the voices of those experiencing inequality, but ensuring that the language used originates from them and is situated in their experiences. There is consequently a clear and pressing need for dialogue and engagement with disadvantaged groups. However, this disadvantages those who may face linguistic barriers, such as immigrant communities, disabled people, or those from lower class or educational backgrounds. If those who can't communicate are consequently excluded from debate, then language itself risks acting as a structural disadvantage and perpetuating societal inequalities further. Furthermore, when considering inequalities in terms of identities, the importance of ownership of language used by individuals, groups or communities must be recognised. Rather, it's not merely whether or not those who are disadvantaged can communicate out, but whether the language used originates from them and is situated in their experience. So if you're still unsure of our approach and our five approaches to equity, here are the words and the experiences of Rhonda, who might be able to do a better job of convincing you. Where I come from and the way I grew up has shaped everything about me. It's something I carry with me every day. I thought I was just normal, lived in a council house, went to school, came home, got a job at 16. 
When I was 12, my mum told me about a book called Chavs. She told me about how people's lives were valued based on where they were born and what their parents did. It all sounded a bit Victorian to me at first, but after being exposed to how people are perceived as scum or lower than anyone else, I realised that our lives aren't valued the same. And we're not all equal, even though we should be. Looking back, I realised just how valuable my upbringing was. I love my town, and I always value the things university didn't teach me as much as those that it did. I value my life experience, my ability to put myself in other people's shoes, and perhaps, more importantly, my abilities to tell stories. In our report, Structurally Unsound, we recognise the lived experience of inequality as challenging to hear, and also challenging to truly work at the intersections. But it's work that is desperately needed. Understanding how structural inequality plays out across different people, places and points in time requires the adoption of a new focus within researchers and policy-making communities. Our report shows how our understanding and conception of inequalities have changed over time and the vast amounts of good work that's been done. But key evidence gaps remain and the challenge is now how do we mainstream all of this thinking into research and policy agendas. By their very nature, structural inequalities can take a long time to dismantle, as Siobhan has already said. And by doing so, it requires active change. Because barriers are embedded in our structures and institutions, it's not enough to assume that things will just simply get better or resolve themselves over time. It is therefore imperative to seek out and meet head-on the challenges at hand. The responsibility for driving change lies with all of us. Our hope is that the lessons we have drawn from our work over the last nine months and the approaches we have laid out this morning and are written through in our report can indeed contribute to helping to make this change. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussions. You can find the report on the Grand Challenges website.